All right. Well, appreciate your singing this morning. We're going to do a little more singing after a bit, but I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them uh, to Psalm 113 this morning. Psalm 113. And you know how when you focus on something, you kind of begin to see it everywhere? You know, like when you, uh, when, when you, you buy a yellow car and all of a sudden... You start seeing yellow cars and trucks everywhere, whereas before you, you, you never saw them, and you thought, wow, nobody drives a yellow car. Then you start seeing them. Well, you, you, you focus on them, and uh, that's kind of what's been happening to me lately uh, with the word hallelujah. Uh, Psalm 111 began with that Hebrew word hallelujah. It's translated praise the Lord in many of our, uh, our Bibles, but the word is hallelujah. And uh, it, it, Psalm 112 also began with the word hallelujah. Psalm 113 this morning begins with that same word, hallelujah. And, uh, and you'll find that every psalm, in fact, between Psalm 111 and Psalm 117, um, with the exception maybe of Psalm 114, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but uh, you'll find that every psalm there begins with the word hallelujah. And uh, again, the New King James translates that, praise the Lord. Uh, but uh, I keep hearing people say hallelujah everywhere. I think I didn't turn the mic on, Sam, did I? Okay, now I got it on. Sorry, I just realized that. Um, I keep hearing people say the word hallelujah all over the place. Uh, and it just seems like as I've been going through these psalms and studying them that, that I, just, I just hear it all the time. And uh, people saying that word. Now, uh, Ronald Allen says that this word, hallelujah, is known by Christians all over the world, no matter what language they speak. He says, it's, it, and I think it's also known by many who aren't believers. Um, I, I had to laugh. This week I actually heard the word hallelujah being sung by actors in the opening scene of a horror movie. Uh, it didn't really seem to, to fit well there, and I wondered if the actors knew what they were singing and what it meant. I suspect they didn't. Um, but the word hallelujah is actually a compound word. Uh, it's made up of the plural imperative form of the verb to praise. Hallel right, means to praise. And the shortened form of the name of God, Yah, shortened form of Yahweh. The imperative, when I say that, just means command. And so it's, it's not a suggestion. That's why our, our, our New King James translators translate it with the phrase, praise the Lord. It's, a, it's an instruction, a command. It's not a suggestion. It's something that is to be obeyed. So if we say hallelujah, but we don't actually praise the Lord, then we, we haven't fulfilled the intention of the word. And I think that's a danger. When we read scripture, we can say what it says. We can even understand what it means. But if we don't do what it commands, then we haven't obeyed or accomplished the intent, the purpose. There's a lot of discussion when we, when we come to the Bible. We all want to know what does the Bible mean. And that's good. We should try to find out what the Bible means. But we haven't really completed the task, if we stop with just what the Bible means. 
Hallelujah means praise the Lord. We don't complete the task by understanding that. We complete the task by doing it. The poet who wrote Psalm 113, he doesn't make that mistake. He begins with that imperative, hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And then he follows that up with a whole series of statements about the Lord. Statements that explain who and how and why to worship and praise Yahweh. And so that's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to take a few minutes to explore these statements. And I trust that as we do that, you too will respond by praising the Lord. That's what I really want to do this morning is I want to invite you to praise the Lord. So let's read Psalm 113. Uh, And then we want to pray and ask God's blessing as we study His Word. Uh, And then we'll examine uh, these truths. Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's help today. Father, we are so thankful that we have your word today. Psalm 113 that we're going to be looking at. We come to the scriptures and we want to first admit that that we are in need of your help. We recognize that this is your word. It is divinely spoken. It's not the word of man. It's not a human production, but it is, is something that is breathed out by God. And therefore, it is profitable to us. And I pray that you would help us to see the prophet here. Help us to understand uh, with our minds uh, the truth, what it's saying, and and what we need to uh, understand and believe. But more than that, help us to obey. Help us to be willing to submit ourselves to the authority of your word, that we might uh, be obedient and follow through to fully praise you today. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would use your word in our hearts and use me to speak the truth that I would not be in any way a hindrance, but that I would simply be a vessel, a channel through which you can speak and your spirit can use the word of God and press upon our hearts the truth today. We'll give you the praise for your work that you're going to accomplish. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we might say that Psalm 113 teaches us the proper praise of Yahweh. Now we observe, we will observe here, in the first three verses, that the psalmist explains the the nature of praise, what exactly this praise is all about. And he gives us some principles about how this praise should be offered. So there's some kind of basic uh, foundational principles that he gives in the first three verses that we want to look at. 
And then the last six verses, he really is going to focus on two major reasons why we ought to praise Yahweh, why we need to praise the Lord. Now we begin then where the psalmist begins by asking a very simple question. And the question would be this, what is, or rather who are the proper subjects of praise? In other words, who is to be praising the Lord? Who should be praising Yahweh? There in verse 1, he answers the question. He begins, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And then he says, praise, O servants of the Lord. So we ask the question, who should praise? And the psalmist answers very carefully, very clearly, the servants of the Lord. Now, Outside of the church, I don't think we really use the word servants very much. We probably don't really that much in the church either. Very few Americans, I think, would aspire to the title of servant. Anybody think that uh, sounds like an appealing job title? You can encourage your children, your grandchildren. Hey, if you could grow up to become a servant, that would be spectacular. What a career you would have. Uh, that's, That's not... Um, that, you know, it, it sounds a little too much like being a slave. And nobody wants to be a slave. I mean, we fought a war over slavery a century and a half ago. And, uh, you know, Americans aren't slaves anymore. That's uh, at least what we like to think. But that is exactly what this word means in the first verse. Praise Yahweh, you slaves of Yahweh. The Lord is a master, and He owns slaves. That might seem to be a shocking statement to you. But that's the truth from the Scripture. He is a master, and He has slaves. According to Leviticus 25 and verse 55, all of the Israelites, all of the whole nation of Israel were slaves of Yahweh. He had redeemed them. He had brought them out of Egypt where they had been slaves of the Egyptians, slaves of Pharaoh. He brought them out and he bound them to himself at Mount Sinai and they became his slaves, his servants. Leviticus 25 says all of Israel was included in that. Now, in the New Testament, Christians are are routinely spoken of as bondservants or slaves of Christ. In fact, Christians in the New Testament often speak this way of themselves. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, uh, in their epistles, uh, call themselves slaves, bondservants of Christ. As Christians, rather than seeing ourselves as free men and women... We confess that we are actually slaves of God. Now, we, we, we actually recognize a more fundamental principle, and that is that when we seek freedom from Christ, what we're choosing instead is to be enslaved to sin and death. Because the Bible tells us that there really isn't the choice of being a slave. The choice is who will be our master. Will we be a slave of sin and death or will we be a slave of Christ? As Christians, we 
willingly, gladly choose to be slaves of God in Christ because we realize that being a slave or a servant of Christ brings true freedom. That's where real life and real freedom exist. Not being freed from any servitude. Not being independent because there is no such thing as an independent existence. No, we want freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from death. And so we choose to be servants of Christ. We submit to Christ as master. So I would encourage you today, don't grow weary of following Christ. Don't grow weary of submitting to Christ as your master. The psalmist says here, praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise. The word praise here in that verse, the second, the second usage there means boast in. So boast that you're a servant of the Lord. Praise the Lord as a servant, as a slave. That's the proper subject. So who should be praising? Who should be boasting in the Lord? It's us who are servants. Us, we who are servants of the Lord. Now, that's fairly straightforward. The psalmist tells us who should be praising, who are the subjects. But there's an object of praise as well. Praise is to be directed at someone or something. So what is the proper object of our praise? In other words, who should we praise? If the proper subject is the servants or the slaves of Yahweh, the proper object here, according to the psalmist, is His holy name. Three times in the first three verses, the psalmist speaks of the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. That's the second or the, the last line of verse one. You see it there. Praise the name of the Lord. Verse two, blessed be the name of the Lord. And the last part of verse three, the Lord's name is to be prayed. Praise three times. He uses that expression, the name of the Lord or the Lord's name. But two other times he speaks the name. So five times in the opening three verses, he uses this name of Yahweh. What's so important about the name of God? What's so important about the name Yahweh? There is importance here. Because his name is his reputation. His name is his renown in the world. It is how he is known. It is how he has revealed himself to the world. And so when we speak about God rightly, when we say things that are true about God and we affirm truths about God with our, with our, our mouth, what we're doing is we are declaring and praising the name of God. We are speaking of His reputation, how He has acted, how He has revealed Himself. Right? When we speak about Him. So His works are great. When we speak of the greatness of His works... We are praising the, the name of Yahweh. When we, uh, when we, his, his righteousness endures forever. Uh, in some more examples. He is gracious and compassionate. He remembers His covenant promises. He has redeemed His people and made a covenant with them. He upholds those who fear Him and follow His commands. 
He will judge righteously and do justice on the earth. You say, well, you're just making all of these statements. Where do they come from? Well, I just took all those from Psalms 111 and 112 that we just finished studying. Those are all the things that those two psalms declare about God. When we declare those things, we are praising the name of Yahweh. We are rightly speaking about the name of the Lord, His reputation, how He has revealed Himself through His actions on the earth and in history, what He has done. And so when we praise the name of Yahweh, we are accurately speaking about Him. So the psalmist says, we who are slaves of Yahweh, we who are His servants, we ought to be praising Him. We ought to be speaking of Him. We ought to be declaring these truths about Him. These are the things that should be coming from our mouth. We speak the truth about God. That's how we praise Him. Now, we have what we might call here the proper praisers and the proper praise e. I don't know if those are really terms, but we'll use them. But there's more questions for us to answer here. We might ask another follow-up question. When is the right time, the proper time to praise? And again, the psalmist is very clear. Verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So when is the right time? When should we praise? Anybody? Right now. Right now. And forever. He says that, right? From this time forth. When is this time? Well, it's now. Whatever now is, it's now. Maybe you didn't praise Him last week or last year or or last decade, but now you can praise Him. So praise Him now and forever, right? We can't go back and and, and make up for lost time. We can't uh, change the past, but we begin today. So even if you've never praised Him before, now you can start praising Him. The time to praise Him is right now. You declare His goodness. You speak the truths about Him to all who will listen. Don't wait until tomorrow to praise the Lord. You do it today. And then you don't stop. Right? That's what the psalmist says. From this time and forevermore. It doesn't stop. You know, there's things that we can do that, uh, that, that you can't ever... Um, Stop. You, you, you do certain things that don't ever seem to be done, right? I mean, I think of some things like um, washing the dishes. You can wash the dishes today, and what's going to happen tomorrow? More dishes to be washed, right? You can do the laundry and get all caught up in the laundry, and then what happens? The kids dump another bucket full of clothes down there, and you got to wash them again. You got to wash another load, right? Or in Sarah's case, you got a you know a baby who blows out the diaper and says, "Hey, mom, do some more laundry," right? That's what happens when you have little ones. I mean, th- those are never-ending things, right? We we do it; it's never finished. We can do the work today, and then tomorrow there's more to do. And and there's lots of things you can you can pay the bills this month, but those bill collectors just keep sending them, 
And so you can pay them all this month, and then next month, you're just going to get more. And it doesn't ever stop. And so we just have to keep on doing those things as long as we live. And many of them are grudging necessities at best. We, we don't necessarily enjoy them, but they're just a reality of life. They have, they have to be done over and over and continuously. We mow the lawn, and it grows back. We shovel the snow, which is coming this week, and it comes back. And then we get more. I know, that's bad news. I'm sorry if you weren't aware of that. They're calling for some snow this week. Sorry about that. Christmas is coming. Um, There's your reminder. (laughs) But all this stuff, we, we have to do it. It's not what we want to spend the rest of our lives doing. And we certainly don't want to go into eternity with those things and say, yay, I'm looking forward to an eternity of washing dishes. Oh, exactly. I mean, the thought of that is kind of seems very much like maybe someone's idea of hell, not heaven. That's not a reward. But the reality is there is one thing we can do today that will never get old. It will never be completed, and yet you'll never get tired of it as long as you live and even if you're a Christian, into and through all of eternity. And that is praising the Lord. Speaking the truth. Declaring what is true. uh, Giving honor to Him because of what is true about Him. That is something you can do today that you can do the rest of your life and on into eternity if you know the Lord. And it will never get old. And it will never run out. And you'll never run out of new aspects of that to understand and and new insights into the nature of God and His dealings and His working. And you'll never run out of things to praise Him for. You can read in the book of Revelation and you see how the, 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 the believers who are in heaven throughout the time that John sees the visions there and how many times they praise the Lord and they continue to praise the Lord. And it's a fresh song every time. It's a different song. And they're just continuing to praise and bow down before the Lord. And, and, and time after time after time, they're just continuing to, to worship and honor the Lord. This is something that we can do now and forever. I'm reminded of the, uh, the familiar hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, the, the, the verse that we usually sing is the last verse. Uh, you, you're familiar with it. It says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years of praising God and we'll still have an eternity ahead of us to praise the Lord. This is an ongoing action. And so it is something that it is time to do now and then forever. So if you haven't begun before now, now's the time to start. If you have been praising the Lord, then guess what? Keep on praising the Lord. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Now, there's one more question that is asked and answered in verse 3. Or answered, we would ask the question. And the, the question is this, where is the proper place? So we got the proper time. It's now and forever. But where, right? Where should we praise? Is there a, a certain location or a certain place? 
Well, what does the psalmist say there, verse 3? From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. Where does the sun rise? In the east. Where does it set? In the west. So, from the place where it comes up to the place where it goes down, Yahweh's name is to be praised. That's everywhere, right? That's everywhere. There's no place on earth, anywhere, in all of humanity where withholding praise from God is acceptable. There's no place where you can say, it's okay, these people are exempt, or this place is exempt. Every place, from the east to the west. It's not just for those people who are especially gifted, or trained to sing, or to play an instrument, They should praise the Lord. Yes, if you have a musical talent or you have some training or some ability that you can do something that maybe others can't do, you should use that to praise the Lord. Absolutely. But but so should the rest of us. From the east to the west. If the sun falls on you, you should praise the Lord. That's all of us. It's not just for designated times and places. It's not just when you, when you come to church on Sunday morning that you should praise the Lord. I mean, you should praise Him here. And you should praise Him there, and you should praise Him everywhere. And it seems a little bit irreverent, but I can't almost picture a version of Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham that's adapted to this psalm. You know, would you praise Him in, on a train? Would you praise Him in the rain? Would you praise Him in a box? Would you praise Him with a fox? I... I I could see rewriting that book and having a little bit of fun with it. I don't mean any irreverence at all. I think the point is there's nowhere that we can go. No circumstance, no, no place, no time where, where we can go, where the praise of the Lord, and by that, I, again, I don't mean just kind of happy joyfulness. Praise means declaring what is true. That's why we can praise the Lord even as we declare His justice and His judgment on the earth. We are praising the Lord when we say what is true about Him, when we declare the truth, whether it's in song or not. And so we we praise the Lord everywhere and in every circumstance. The answer should be yes, I would praise Him here, there, and everywhere. But why? This is really where the heart of the psalm really kind of shines through. Why praise the Lord? Why? We're often, I think, a lot like two-year-olds. We ask why, um, as opposed to being you know, obedient slaves who just follow the master's command. The master says it, we do it. We, we, we want to know why, right? Um, thankfully, Our Lord is very gracious. I mean, think about it. He could just end the psalm at verse 3. Praise the Lord everywhere at all times. His name is to be praised, period. Go do it. But he doesn't. He doesn't have to tell us why, but he does tell us why. That's great. That's gracious. He gives us reason here. 
He explains why it is reasonable to praise his name. He gives us two reasons in this psalm, and they're not exhaustive. There's many, many more. But I might, you, might, you might call these the proper themes of praise. The first one is found there in verses 4 through 6. And it's, it's this. It's the majesty of the Lord. Our Lord is majestic. The psalmist does hear what many other biblical writers do. When they want to communicate the majesty and the glory of God, they, the biblical writers often use comparison and contrast. So what does he say, verse 4? The Lord is high above all nations. Let's compare the greatness and the majesty of Yahweh to the greatness of the nations of the earth, all of the kingdoms of the earth. We think about the, the grandeur and the splendor of, of, of state functions and, and, uh, and ceremonies and all of the things that take place and the bands and the marching soldiers and the, the fanfare and all the kind of stuff that you see when, you, when, when, when governments of the world go to put on a display. I mean, one, maybe one example that would be helpful is, is think of like the Olympics, right? When you have the opening ceremonies and you have all of the different countries represented and they've got music and the marching of the, the teams and the, the torch and all of this stuff. And there's, there, there's kind of this, this grandeur about that. But what the psalmist says is this. If we compare Yahweh, our Lord, to the grandeur of the nations, the Lord is high above them. He is, is supreme He is sovereign. He rules over them as king. Therefore, he's not surprised by world events and he's not challenged by the power or the plans of human rulers. In recent years, and maybe this is nothing new, but it seems like in recent years I've been hearing a lot, in the political realm especially, that it's okay to trust in God but you'd better vote for fill in the blank or our country is, is really in trouble. I mean, our country's at stake if you don't vote for whoever they say. Well, I've got news for you. That's a lie. That's a lie. And, I, and I, 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 I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to be honest here. That's a lie to say that our country's at stake. You'd better vote this way or that way. That kind of thinking is not recognizing the truth that the Lord is high above all nations. I'm not trying to suggest that that your voting is unimportant. I'm simply saying we need to affirm what Scripture says here in verse 4. The Lord is not threatened by the prospect of a Democratic president or of a second term of Donald Trump. Whichever one scares you more, I don't really care. The Lord is not threatened by either one of them. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. Go vote whoever, don't vote. I'm not saying that. You know that I care about those things and those things are important and we need to apply biblical thinking and principles as we do that. But the Lord is on high over the nations. Our country's future is not resting in your hands and mine or in any political power. The Lord rules. We need to remember that. He's not just high above the nations of the earth because that's the first part of verse 4 and that's pretty significant. But notice what he says secondly. He repeats, parallels this, His glory above the heavens. 
He's actually above the very heavens themselves. Think about that. The farthest stars and galaxies do not rival his beauty or his majesty. Nothing in all of creation, no matter how grand, how powerful, how beautiful, how stunning, nothing in creation can compare to him for greatness and glory. Now, even that is not the full picture of his majesty. I mean, we can look and we can see so much beauty in the world around us, so much majesty and greatness. I, I think there's value and benefit, I mean, in, in, in studying the natural world and trying to understand more. Uh, one of the things that's always fascinated me is space. Um, astronomy, is a, to me, has, has always been a favorite subject ever since I was in school, and I took some classes in it, and just absolutely fascinated by the incredible um, wonder and majesty of the stars and the heavens and what we see spread out, uh, the mysteries there that just are fascinating to me. And, and, I, and I think it's amazing. And, but here's the thing. As we begin to, to study some of these things, it doesn't take much, doesn't take very long before we get overwhelmed. But what do I mean by that? Well, you start looking at how big everything is, how, how far out all of these stars and galaxies are, and, and how little of it we have explored and understand. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a chance to, to listen to a presentation about the Na- NASA research um, that they did on, on, the, on, on the planet Saturn. And it was fascinating, absolutely amazing. But you realize that it was, it, was, it was a 30-year project for us to send a probe from the Earth to Saturn to, to do some flies around Saturn to learn uh, some things about the, the, the planet Saturn. That's in our solar system. That seems like it's like right next door. And it still took us 30 years to do that. We can't even begin to comprehend the distances and the, the magnitude and the majesty of it. And yet, what does the psalmist say in this very brief phrase? His glory is above the heavens. Just take all of that. We lose ourselves in it. It's more than we can comprehend. And yet, all of that combined, and we still compare that to the Lord. And what do we see? The Lord's glory is above it. He's greater than it. That's how we ought to think of Him. But, but verse 5 then really challenges us. It, asks, it says this, really interesting kind of rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is like Him? This is a very important question. It's the, the basis, actually, for several Hebrew names that you might be familiar with. The name Michael means who is like God. And the name Micah means who is like Yahweh. You're familiar with those names. We use those names in English, but they're really Hebrew names. And they, they ask this question. Who is like, who can be compared to the Lord? And so this, the very fact of asking this question is reminding us that there is no one like God. There is no one who can compare to Him for majesty and glory. Look at what the rest of verse 5 and then on into verse 6. The rest of verse 5, who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? The, the word dwells on high, that expression is kind of interesting because it, it has the idea of sitting down. 
He sits down on high. Because to dwell means to sit down and remain seated, to stay in this place. And so he dwells on high. He sits down on high. But the very act of sitting down exalts him and is incomparable to everyone else. He exalts himself by sitting down. That, That is astounding. Everything that Yahweh does brings glory to himself, even sitting down on his throne. When he sits down, he glorifies himself. That's amazing. Our God is so highly exalted. And the psalmist here is trying to to, to continue to push our understanding and our imagination here to see this, to picture this. And so in verse 6, he continues this thought. Our God, who is like him? He dwells on high. He sits down on high. And notice, he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. He humbles himself. That word, humbles, means to to, uh, debase oneself or bring oneself low. So he sits on high, but when he wants to look at the earth and see what's going on here, he has to get down low. That's how high and exalted he is. He has to bend way down just to see us. This isn't saying that God is, you know, nearsighted or something. It's emphasizing the great distance between God and everything else. In order for God to observe the world and the things he's created, he has to condescend. He has to come down from his exalted position and his, his, his uh, being high and lifted up. He has to come down just to observe us. He has to bring himself low just to have interaction with his creation. We're like ants in the anthill. And he's walking around above ground. But even that doesn't really do justice to what this comparison is. We're so far down beneath him, he's got to lie down in the grass and get real close just to be able to see us. That's the picture here. That's how majestic and glorious he is. That's how highly exalted he is. How worthy of praise and worship he is. Our God is majestic. So you should praise him. You should declare his goodness. You should declare his glory and his majesty because he is so great and awesome. You need a reason to praise the Lord? You need proper theme to motivate you? Spend some time thinking about how he's enthroned above the heavens. How he is uh, ruling over the kingdoms of this world. How he is incomparable in his majesty. Just give yourself time to meditate on those truths. And if you can't praise the Lord, then you don't know him. And it's not that you are unable to, it's that you're unwilling to praise the Lord at that point. Our God is amazing and majestic and glorious. But there's another reason to praise the Lord. And I want to get to this because this one's really good. I mean, that's good too. Don't get me wrong. I love that. Let's praise the Lord for His majesty. But there's another reason to praise the Lord. A second theme here that's proper. And it's found in verses 7 through 9. And it's this. Our Lord is merciful. 
Our Lord is not just majestic, He's also merciful. He's not just glorious, He's also gracious. This is where things get amazingly wonderful. Who is like the Lord our God? Verse 7, He raises the poor out of the dust. And he lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Who is like the Lord our God? You know what he does? You know what our God does? He raises the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, the empty and the destitute. He raises them up from the dust. He picks them up off the ash heap. Imagine the lowest creature you can think of, the most despicable, filthy, wretched, and lonely person on the face of the earth. Our God reaches down from His incomparable throne in the heavens. Remember, He has to bend way down just to see us. But He doesn't just bend down to look. He reaches down and He picks up that person and He lifts him up and He seats him among princes. What a reversal of fortune! that the psalmist here is speaking of. That's not how it's supposed to work. Right? That's not how the world works. The rich are supposed to get richer. And the poor get poorer. That's pretty much how things work in the world. I mean, I know people don't like that, but that's pretty much how it works. We just, we just make things worse. The more we try to help out and try to intervene and try to get involved, you, you realize what happens most of the time when, when, when men kind of try to figure these problems out. We're going we're gonna to solve the problem of poverty. We're going to solve this problem. Or solve it. We tend to make it worse. And we just create wider gaps. But that's, not how the, that's not how the Lord works. He doesn't, he doesn't recognize human conventions. We, we might think of it as the natural order of things. You have people who are high and people who are low, and that's just kind of the natural order of things. He doesn't recognize that. He loves to exalt the humble, and He loves to humble the exalted. That's what our God does. Now, what's really interesting about this in in these verses of the psalm is that the psalmist here in verses 7 and 8 is actually quoting from another psalm. Now, it's not a psalm in the book of Psalms. Uh, It's actually one I mentioned yesterday to the ladies. Um, It's from a totally different passage. Here, the psalmist borrows from the words that were first spoken by a young mother named Hannah. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 8, uh, the psalmist here quotes that verse. He takes from the song of Hannah. And Hannah was singing a song of praise to the Lord after, uh, after God had given her a son, son that she named Samuel. Hannah had been barren for years. She'd been unable to conceive. And you have to understand, in the, in the culture of the ancient Near East, being barren meant that you were an outcast from society. Um, childlessness is a very, very difficult and frankly quite prevalent problem even today, even with all of the modern technology and medical invention that we have. Uh, statistically, one out of six uh, married couples will go through infertility at one point in their marriage or another. One out of six. Which means that even a little church like ours is not excluded from that. That's a real struggle. It's a real challenge. But it was even more of a challenge in some ways back in those days because it was viewed as as such a a, a negative 
a, a, a circumstance. When a, when a woman was unable to conceive, there was something wrong with her. I mean, that was the way that she was viewed. There was something wrong, maybe morally wrong. God was judging her, punishing her for some reason. Or maybe there was something wrong that, that you, if you got too close, you might catch it. You didn't want to risk it. So she would be an outcast. And so Hannah experienced mocking taunts from her rival. You see, in the, in the, the Old Testament uh, era, if a man married a woman and she turned out to be barren, he could marry another woman to give him children to continue on the family name. And that's what happened in Hannah's case. Her husband had married another woman who was able to have children. And so Hannah, though her husband loved her very much and he, he didn't want to get rid of her, he, he, he loved her. But he, he had this other wife who had children. And Penina, this other, uh, this other rival, she mocked Hannah and, 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 and belittled her. But I'm sure other than that, the, the, the scriptures don't reference it directly, but historically we know that Hannah must have experienced the, the sidelong glances of the other women in, in the hill country of Ephraim who would have, who would have kept their distance, afraid of catching whatever malady had caused her to be barren or being uh, maybe you know, caught up in the judgment of God if God was punishing her. They didn't want to get too close. They didn't want to risk getting that. They didn't want to risk that falling on them. And so Hannah would have been in many ways, an outcast. And so if anyone understood what it meant to be poor and needy, to be down in the dust or out on the ash heap, it was Hannah. But in 1 Samuel 1, we read about a day when she and her family were at the tabernacle in Shiloh for the annual feast. They would go every year and her husband because he loved her, would give her an extra portion of the food from the feast meal. He, he loved his wife. He, 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 he cared for her as best he could. And there that day, she was grieved. And she went into the tabernacle and she began to pray. And she wept. And she poured out the bitterness of her heart and her soul to the Lord. And she prayed that Yahweh would look on her with compassion, that he would open her womb and he would give her a son. And she vowed a vow to the Lord that day. And she said that if the Lord gave her a son, she would dedicate him to Yahweh completely. That if the Lord would just take away her reproach and her shame, she would dedicate that son to the Lord. She would give him to the Lord. And the Bible tells us the Lord heard her prayer. She received a son. She conceived and she she gave birth to Samuel. His name means heard of God. She was confessing. She was praising the Lord even by naming her son. God heard me. God is the one who hears. That's what she was saying. She's praising the Lord. Samuel was dedicated to the Lord from, from the womb. He would spend his entire life living with the priests, and then serving as Israel's prophet and judge. And the Bible tells us that as Hannah weaned Samuel, so he was probably at this point, was probably two or three years old. We don't know exactly the age, but as he was being weaned, uh, she brought him to the tabernacle in Shiloh to fulfill her vow, to give him over to the service of the Lord, to give up her son, 
that she loved, but she had vowed a vow and she was going to fulfill her vow. And she brought him to Eli, the high priest, to raise him to serve the Lord. And when she did, she sang a song of praise. And it is an incredible song. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. It's an incredible song. And in that psalm, in verse 8, she says this of Yahweh, that he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. This woman expressed her faith so powerfully in that song. And what's amazing to me, not only is her song included in Scripture in 1 Samuel chapter 2, but the psalmist who wrote Psalm 113, probably, my, my guess, if I had to venture a guess at the time, probably centuries later after the exile, the psalmist who wrote this psalm reflected back and he thought, you know what, that's the picture. Hannah, she's the picture of the mercy of God. And he quoted from her song because he knew that any good Jewish reader who was going to read and sing this psalm would connect to Hannah would recognize this and say, oh, that's from the song of Hannah. That's from the song of the one that the Lord, the barren woman that the Lord blessed with a child. And so the the, the psalmist borrows from Hannah and he concludes the psalm there in verse 9 that God, Yahweh, grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Isn't this what God does? He takes things as they are, broken and dark and full of pain and misery, and then He transforms them. And He turns them on their head. He takes those that are lowly, the hurting, the broken, and He lifts them up and He binds their wounds and He establishes them in places of honor. Have you experienced this transformation? You say, well, I don't know that I've ever been in the position of Hannah or... I've ever been poor and needy and down in the ash heap. Well, don't get so ahead of yourself and don't think too highly of yourself. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of a very similar reversal of fortune that God has done. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, Paul says this, but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. You get that? We were dead in trespasses. We were in the dust. We were out on the ash heap. We were buried six feet under. Even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, Paul says, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. But that's not enough. That's not all because Paul goes on. And he says, raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He reaches down to those who are on the ash heap. He picks them up and he lifts them up and he seats them with princes. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, that's exactly what God does. When he takes a sinner who's dead in their sins and he picks them up and he gives them life and then not only life, but he, he lifts us up and he seats us to sit in the heavenly places with Christ. God, because of his great love and the richness of his mercy, has taken us who were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. 
and raised us to sit in heavenly places, to sit with princes. That's what this writer of Psalm 113 says. Have you been raised to life with Christ? Have you been delivered from your sins and your trespasses? And have you been made to sit in heavenly places? A lot of people talk about being Christians. And what they mean by that is they go to church or they, they were baptized once or they are good moral people who, who are, 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 you know, follow the laws and do what they should do and are nice, kind to others. But the real question is, has God raised you up from the dust? Has he taken you from the ash heap of your sin and seated you in heavenly places with Christ? Because if not, then you're still dead in your sins. You're not even a Christian. Not really. No matter what you call yourself. If that's you today, then I implore you to turn to the Lord and plead for mercy and grace. Cry out for forgiveness for your sins. Cast yourself upon the mercy of our great, incomparable God. Because though He is majestic and glorious and rules above all, He is merciful. And He loves to reach down and pick up sinners off the ash heap and seat them in heavenly places. There's still time for you to be reconciled with Him. If you'll repent and you'll believe. Let me just speak to those of you who are born again this morning, I want to ask you just two simple questions, slightly adapted uh, from the commentary written by Dennis Tucker and Jamie Grant on this psalm. How do you not break out in unfettered praise when you consider that your God is enthroned on high as divine king? Yet how can you not be humbled deeply by a God who lifts people from the ash heap and creates life from barrenness? There's only one word that we can use to respond. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. You are so great. God, our Father in heaven, you are amazing in your majesty and your glory. Your power is beyond our understanding. We are so weak. There are so many things about this world that we can't control and about our lives, even about our own selves. Lord, we try and we try and nothing works. We can't control it. We can't gain mastery of ourselves and certainly not of our circumstances. We need you in all of your majesty and your glory. But we need you in your mercy, reaching down to pick us up from the dust and from the ash heap. Lord, we need you to transform our circumstances. We need you to glorify yourself in us and through us, even in the midst of the darkness and the trials and the difficulties of life. We realize that You don't always change all of the circumstances and make everything good, or at least not what seems good to us. But we realize that you are doing a good work in us, even in those circumstances. 
And more than that, we hope and look forward to a day when you will right all of the wrongs and you will heal all of our wounds and you will dry every tear of our eye. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us to show your mercy even in the midst of our struggles and our trials today. More than anything else, help us to praise you. Help us to declare your goodness and your glory and your judgment and your holiness and your righteousness and all of these truths over and over. Help us to begin today to praise you and never to stop. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is not praising you because they're not your servant, they don't know you, they're still in the ash heap, they're still down and out as sinners uh, in the grave, dead in their sins, I pray that today they would realize that that's where they are. It's not a a comfortable place to be. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of loss. It's a place of of grief and sorrow. I pray that they would feel acutely that grief and that sorrow, and then they would turn to you and beg for mercy, and you would reach down and you'd pick them up from that ash heap, and you would set them on high with the prince's to sit in heavenly places with Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your great mercy. Help us to praise you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.